Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 21, Many Loved Ones Gone Before. There's an image of Mary Lincoln as a loud, emotional harridan who went through money without restraint or shame. It was born during her years in the White House, and as we'll see, it's not entirely accurate. The harpy myth gets even dicier when you look at Mary in the early years of her marriage and how she coped with circumstances of Abraham Lincoln's making. When her husband served in Congress, Mary lived a nomadic life. She spent about five months in Washington, in a cramped and crowded room at Anna Spriggs' boarding house, with two rambunctious boys under the age of five. Samuel Busey, who took his meals there, recalled decades later that Mary, quote, was so retiring that she was rarely seen except at the meals. There were things to do in Washington, like weekly concerts on the White House lawn, but Mary doesn't seem to have taken advantage of the entertainments. In April 1848, Mary went to Kentucky with Robert, age four, and Eddie, age two, to stay with her father and stepmother. After a brief reunion with Abraham that summer, she returned to Springfield in October, but not to her home. The Lincolns rented their house during Lincoln's term in Congress, and the lease did not run out until February 1849. So, Robert went back to the Todd family in Kentucky. Mary and Eddie spent the fall and winter in the Globe, the boarding house where she had started life with her husband, spending her time waiting for him. She must have felt lonely. Until the late 1850s, Mary and Abraham spent most of their lives apart. Abraham had to spend months traveling through central Illinois to earn a living. By one estimate, he was gone from home 190 days in 1850, or more than six months. James Gurley, a shoemaker who was one of the Lincoln's neighbors, often spoke with Mary. He later remembered, quote, She always said that if her husband stayed home, as he ought to, that she could love him better. When Abraham was home, his moods waxed and waned without warning. Francis Wallace, Mary's sister, said, quote, Lincoln would lean back his head against the top of a rocking chair, sit abstracted that way for a moment, 20 or 30 minutes, and all at once burst out in a joke. While Lincoln traveled the length and breadth of Illinois, Mary's universe extended no further than a few blocks around the house the Lincolns bought in 1844. Mary's father, Robert, likely helped them with the purchase from the Reverend Charles Dresser, the minister who married them. It was in a less prosperous part of Springfield, a benefit to Abraham at a time when rivals accused him of being an aristocrat. The one-and-a-half-story, five-room house was cramped. There was a parlor and sitting room on the first floor and a small kitchen at the back where Mary served meals. There were two bedrooms and a half-loft, but the roof was slanted, and according to historian David Herbert Donald, Lincoln had only a four-foot stretch 
where he could unfold his six-foot-four frame. Apart from a garden that lasted about a year, there were few, if any, plants or trees around the house, reflecting Abraham's total aversion to agricultural work. Mary had to keep all of this in order. In mid-19th century America, the homemaker was expected to make everything agreeable for her family, provide an education for her children, and give her husband a refined refuge from the rough world of business. In her book, At Home in 19th Century America, the historian Amy Richter writes, quote, As men's labor increasingly moved outside the home, domestic spaces came to be associated with women, who were expected to maintain them as bulwarks against the morally suspect public world of business competition. Women's domestic work was recast in these terms, less and less depicted as productive labor with economic value, and instead described as an extension of women's inherent nature and a form of feminine love and endurance. This, of course, led to impossible expectations. Richter quotes a work from the writer Catherine Beecher, whose 1841 treatise on domestic economy said, quote, The writer has known families, where the mother's presence seemed the sunshine of the circle around her, imparting a cheerful and vivifying power, scarcely realized until it was withdrawn. Everyone, without thinking of it, or knowing why it was so, experienced a peaceful and invigorating influence as soon as they entered the sphere illumined by her smile and sustained by her cheering kindness and sympathy. On the contrary, many a good housekeeper, good in every respect but this, by wearing a countenance of anxiety and dissatisfaction, and by indulging in the frequent use of sharp and reprehensive tones, more than destroys all the comfort that otherwise would result from her system, neatness, and economy. Ideals weigh heavy on those living under them. Mary struggled more than most. She was a single parent for much of the year, and her husband's long absences may have led to financial uncertainty. It's not clear if Abraham sent money home while he was on the road. Mary almost certainly had to open accounts at local stores that could not be settled until Abraham returned. Far from being a spendthrift, Mary was careful with money during her married life in Springfield. She haggled with fruit peddlers and general store managers in an unladylike way, trying to get the best price. She had to purchase clothing for the boys on her limited budget. Robert wore blue jeans, working men's clothes that invited mockery from wealthier children. And despite her upper-class background, Mary did much of the domestic chores by herself, chores that in the days before electricity would cloud any person's sunshine. As Catherine Clinton writes, quote, Simple daily household tasks, like cleaning and cooking, became doubly burdensome with water drawn from a well or carried up from the basement. One woman complained that her dishes stared down at her as she wearily contemplated her repetitive ritual of rinse, scald, scour, and wash, rinse, and dry. Servants were common in Springfield. Jean Baker, Mary's biographer, writes that one out of every four houses in Springfield had a servant. Mary's sister Elizabeth, in the upper crust of city life, had at least six servants. Her sister Frances, in roughly similar financial circumstances to Mary, always had one. 
but Mary tended to hire fewer servants than a woman of her station was expected to have. This was partly a market issue. Baker writes that the arrival of a clothing factory in Springfield in the 1850s squeezed the market for domestic help, and Mary, mindful of the family resources, tended to underpay servants. She rarely, if ever, hired permanent help, and was quick to fire servants if money got tight. She brought in immigrants, like those she described as the wild Irish, and members of the African-American community. Ruth Stanton, who worked in the Lincoln household, later remembered that she scrubbed the floors and did the dishes, while Mary did work upstairs. But Mary's quick firings and frequent temper gave her a reputation for being difficult, particularly among American-born servants who felt she talked down to them. Harriet Hanks Chapman, the daughter of Abraham's cousin Dennis Hanks, lived with the Lincolns in the mid-1840s while pursuing studies at a local school in Springfield. She worked as a servant for Mary, but later told William Herndon she had little good to say about her former employer. Most of the time, though, Mary did housework alone. She kept the coals lighted in the stove and spent long hours getting lunch and dinner ready for her sons and husband, whose absent-mindedness about mealtimes was a frequent source of frustration. At regular intervals during the year, she rolled the carpets up, hung them outside, and beat weeks of dust and mud back into the churning earth that passed for Springfield streets. Mary had to do all of this looking as pretty as possible. She found the material for her dresses and often decorated them herself. Baker notes that Mary's purchases included ingredients for makeup that she used to give herself a pale appearance, as seen in an 1846 photograph, the earliest image of Mary. Mary also took the larger role in raising the Lincoln children. Victorian parents were as uncertain about the balance between love and discipline as we are today. The mother's assistant, a book Mary probably consulted, said, quote, Parents must never put away their youth. They must never cease to be young. Their sympathies and sensibilities should always be quick and fresh. Children need not only government, firm and mild, but sympathy and tenderness. Mary and Abraham tended to emphasize the latter. One passenger who rode a train with the Lincolns in the late 1840s remembered Robert and Eddie, quote, keeping the whole train in a turmoil, and their long-legged father, instead of spanking the brats, looked pleased as punch and abetted the older one in mischief. Not surprisingly, the Lincoln children developed reputations for being wild. Mary spanked her sons when they misbehaved. But she seems to have done this less than other parents, while Abraham may not have done it at all. Harriet Chapman recalled a fight where Mary chastised Abraham for being less than firm with Robert. Chapman said, quote, Mr. Lincoln corrected his child as a father ought to do, in the face of his wife's anger, and that too, without even changing his countenance or making any reply to his wife. But Mary could be a playmate too. Baker notes that she organized at least one birthday party for her sons, a highly unusual thing to do at that time. 
Mary could also display an endearing dorkiness. When Robert and a friend organized a round of medieval games, Mary told them, quote, Gramercy, brave knights. Pray, be more merciful than you are brawny. The few descriptions of the Lincoln boys at this time suggest that Robert and Eddie worked together as a team, with Robert, the ringleader. Samuel Busey, who shared a table with the Lincolns in Washington, remembered that Robert had the run of Anna Spriggs' boarding house. Mary and Abraham called Robert Bob or Bobby, and Mary felt protective toward him. Once, after discovering Bob had eaten some lime kept near the Lincoln's outhouse, she stirred the neighborhood with cries of, Bobby will die! Bobby will die! At the same time, Bob roamed the muddy streets of Springfield with a complete lack of restraint. Jason Emerson, in Giant in the Shadows, his biography of Robert Lincoln, tells a story that Bob once happened upon a house that was under construction. When no one was looking, he took some copper pipe that was on site, brought it to a local hardware store, and sold it to the proprietor. This was too much even for Abraham, and he took Bob back to the store, made him apologize, bought the pipe himself, and returned it to the construction site. But Bob was an intelligent boy, and this seems to have spared him from more severe censure. Abraham would later justify his indulgence of his younger children by saying that Bob had turned out all right. Most people who knew the Lincolns in the late 1840s either overlooked Eddie, the Lincoln's second son, or confused him with his older brother. But Mary and Abraham adored him, and their surviving letters paint a vivid picture of a sensitive little toddler. When Abraham went off to work in the House of Representatives, Eddie would say that his father had gone tapala, or gone to the Capitol. After Mary and the boys went to Kentucky, she told Abraham that Eddie's eyes would brighten whenever she mentioned his father. Eddie also seems to have shared Abraham's affection for animals. In a letter to Abraham in 1848, Mary wrote, quote, Bobby, in his wanderings today, came across in a yard a little kitten. He brought it triumphantly to the house. So soon as Eddie spied it, his tenderness broke forth. He made them, them being the enslaved servants, bring it water, fed it with bread himself with his own dear hands. He was a delighted little creature over it. In the midst of this happiness, Ma came in. She, you must know, dislikes the whole cat race. I thought, in very unfeeling manner, she ordered the servants to throw it out, which of course was done, to screaming and protesting loudly at the proceeding. One reason Eddie may have been overlooked was chronic illness. Mary and Abraham make references to Eddie being sick in their surviving letters, and the lack of references to Eddie from those who knew the Lincolns suggest, perhaps, that he spent most of his days in bed. Unfortunately, Eddie was not the only child of his time to suffer this way. The Victorians experienced a unique kind of suffering that stemmed from the advances that rapidly changed their physical and intellectual landscapes. American cities grew rapidly as transportation networks spread in the 19th century. Springfield's population in 1850 
was twice as large as it had been when Lincoln arrived in 1837, and it would double again over the next decade. This growth ran far, far ahead of society's ability to handle it. Sanitation was rudimentary. In Springfield, water supplies were especially vulnerable to disease and contamination, thanks to flooding and free-roaming animals who left their droppings everywhere. Stagnant water pools and the unpaved streets spread insects, who tormented residents. Jean Baker writes that during the summer, homeowners had to choose between turning their home into an oven or letting the bugs in. Disease was commonplace, and it took a deadly toll on the young. John Waller, in his book Health and Wellness in 19th Century America, points to census records from the time that show one out of every five babies born on the frontier died before their first birthdays. 25% of children aged between one and four didn't make it to their fifth birthday. These numbers were horrifically higher among enslaved people. In the South, nearly 60% of all African-American children died before their 15th birthday. Native Americans probably suffered just as much, if not more. Children who survived the epidemics became more vulnerable to disease as adults, and often experienced stunted growth. Waller notes that a child born in 1860 grew, on average, to be an inch shorter than the average soldier in World War II, and about an inch shorter than the average soldier of the American Revolution. The only known photograph of Eddie Lincoln shows a toddler with a large head, but notably short arms and a tiny body. In early December 1849, Eddie developed what doctors now believe was tuberculosis. Americans of the time called it consumption. The poor child suffered terribly. Baker writes, quote, Consumption's real-life victims alternated between the hectic flow of high fevers and coughing and lifeless intervals of exhaustion and anorexia that raised and lowered maternal hopes in a pitiless sequence. If Eddie's disease followed the usual course, he coughed, rested, recovered his breath, and then was racked again by coughing. Dr. William Wallace, Mary's brother-in-law, attended Eddie and may have given him purgatives or even opiates to relieve the pain. Mary ceaselessly nursed her son. She had already lost loved ones that year. Her father, Robert, died in the cholera epidemic that swept the world in 1849. In late January 1850, she learned her beloved grandmother, Eliza Parker, had died in Kentucky. And an even worse blow would follow. At 6 a.m. on the cold, rainy morning, of February 1st, 1850, Eddie Lincoln died. He was about six weeks short of his fourth birthday. The next day, a funeral procession conveyed Eddie's body to Oak Ridge Cemetery after a service in the Lincoln home. Custom dictated that the mother not go with the dead child. Mary may have been too prostrated with grief to make the attempt. 
it is chilling to read contemporary child-rearing books that try to prepare parents for the deaths of their young ones. The mother's assistant said, quote, You can never forget the chamber where lay the dying child. The fever flush was on his cheek. The dewdrops of death chased each other down his brow. How helpless, frail, and fading a thing he was, writhing in bitter struggles. Composed to his last long sleep, the faded rose upon his bosom seemed a fit emblem of himself. In an age tormented by illness, with few, if any, cures available, and no conception of psychological help, books advise parents to resign themselves to a child's death and think of how much happier the afterlife was. About a week after Eddie's death, the Illinois Journal, the renamed Sangamo Journal, published a poem called Little Eddie, under the heading, By Request. The poem, Mourning the Death of a Child, concludes with, quote, Angel boy, fare thee well, farewell, sweet Eddie, we bid thee adieu. Affection's wail cannot reach thee now, deep though it be, and true. Bright is the home to him now given, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Mary and Abraham had of such is the kingdom of heaven engraved on Eddie's tombstone. But resignation was not in the Lincoln's natures. Mary's grief was profound, and it took a physical and psychic toll. At one point, Abraham had to tell her, Eat, Mary, for we must live. Mary dreamed of her lost son for years afterward. In 1853, she wrote in the letter, quote, I grieve to say that even at this distant day, I do not feel sufficiently submissive to our loss. Abraham kept his emotions bottled up, but Eddie haunted him as well. In a speech given as he left Springfield in 1861, Abraham became visibly emotional after referring to Eddie. He later told a friend that if he had 20 children, quote, he could never cease to sorrow for that one. Within two months of Eddie's death, Mary became pregnant. That December, Mary gave birth to William Wallace Lincoln, named in honor of Mary's brother-in-law and his tender treatment of Eddie in his final days. Known as Willie, he would become as adored by his parents as his late brother. But Robert would always be a bit removed from him. Eddie's death had cost him a brother, a playmate, and the only member of the family close to him in age. Mary became more protective of Robert, but also more dependent on him. It was a terrible spot for the young boy. As Emerson notes, Robert's isolation from other family members began with Eddie's death. As Mary recovered from Willie's birth, Abraham got two letters from his stepbrother, 
John Johnston, in Gooseness Prairie in Coles County. Johnston told Lincoln that his father Thomas was dying. Lincoln did not take the message seriously at first. Abraham and John were close growing up and retained warm feelings for each other. John named his second son Abraham. But John appears to have struggled with alcohol addiction. During one stretch in 1851, Johnson bought what today would be the equivalent of three bottles of whiskey a week, which would have allowed Johnston to down up to 10 shots a day. He struggled to support a family that would eventually number seven children, and what money Johnston earned went to alcohol and flashy clothes. One neighbor called him, quote, the Beau Brummel of Goosenest Prairie. Dennis Hanks later wrote, quote, a kinder-hearted man never was in Coles County, Illinois, nor an honester man. I don't say this because he was my brother-in-law. I say, knowing it. John did not love to work any of the best. I plagued him for not working. Johnston pursued money-making schemes that ended badly. Thomas Lincoln usually got involved in Johnston's plans, whether as an active partner or someone John dragged in as insurance. Thomas had experienced his own ups and downs in Coles County. At one point, he owned 200 acres of land there, but the Panic of 1837 hit him hard, and eventually, Thomas sold all but 80 acres. Aging and blind, he enjoyed no rest. According to historian Charles Coleman, Thomas assisted a neighbor in the hot, hard work of a blacksmith when he was in his 60s. Abraham may have suspected Johnston was using his father, and his letters to John swung sharply between criticism and concern. In an 1848 letter, after Johnston asked for a loan of $80, Abraham blasted his stepbrother's, quote, habit of uselessly wasting time, and offered instead to give him a dollar-for-dollar match for everything he earned. Later in the letter, Abraham wrote, quote, You have always been kind to me, and I do not now mean to be unkind to you. Despite these difficulties, Abraham maintained ties with his extended family. As we've seen, Harriet Hanks Chapman, the daughter of Dennis and Lincoln's stepsister Elizabeth, lived with the Lincolns for a time in Springfield. Abraham provided for his parents and unreservedly loved his stepmother Sarah, who he called mother in letters and mama in person. While it was outside the legal circuit where Lincoln practiced, Lincoln did take cases in Coles County and probably saw his family there once a year. Dennis Hanks' children would later remember Lincoln sleeping at their house when he was handling cases in Charleston or traveling up to see Thomas and Sarah, usually leaving them $10 or $15 gifts. In May 1849, as Abraham was fighting Justin Butterfield over the general land office appointment in Washington, Johnson wrote to Abraham that Thomas had suffered a heart attack and was on his deathbed. Johnson wrote, quote, He craves to see you all the time, and he wants you to come if you are able to get here. For you are his only child that is of his own flesh and blood, and it is nothing more than nature for him to see you. Abraham dashed off to Coles County, but when he arrived, he found that Thomas had either recovered or that Johnston had made the whole thing up, possibly to squeeze money out of him. For this reason, 
Abraham ignored the first two letters from Johnston about his father. But the third letter, this one from Harriet Hanks Chapman, confirmed that Thomas was on his deathbed, likely suffering from kidney disease. He was 73, and making it that far after a lifetime of want and struggle was something of an accomplishment. But that life was finally coming to a close. A neighbor named June Price Fury came to the cabin to read the Bible to the now sightless carpenter. In a letter Abraham wrote to Johnston on January 12, 1851, Abraham told his stepbrother to use his name to secure the services of a doctor for his father. But he claimed that his business and Mary's condition after childbirth made it impossible for him to leave home. This was certainly possible, but the trip to Goosenest Prairie was not so long that he could not put business aside or have Mary's sisters in Springfield watch over her. It was a rationalization for a decision that, on some level, may have made Lincoln ashamed. He wrote, quote, Say to him that if we could meet now, it is doubtful whether it would not be more painful than pleasant, but that, if it be his lot to go now, he will soon have a joyous meeting with many loved ones gone before, and where the rest of us, through the help of God, hope ere long to join them. Five days later, Thomas Lincoln died. At the funeral that took place at Thomas and Sarah's home, the women sat in the cabin, the men stood outside, and the preacher stood in the doorway between them, roaring so loudly that Jane Price Fury's daughter said she could hear him a half mile away. Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Lincoln's only living biological child, was not there. His relationship with his father was strained, but nothing in the surviving records suggests Thomas was particularly cruel to his son, certainly nothing that would provide a rational reason for Lincoln absenting himself. It's possible Lincoln didn't take Johnston's pleadings seriously. It's possible Abraham felt his Coles County relatives showed little concern for Eddie's death. A letter Lincoln wrote to Johnston three weeks after his son's demise told him of Eddie's death, quote, as you make no mention of it. But he may simply have felt no reason to dissemble his real feelings about his father. It was honest, but it reflects poorly on Abraham. David Herbert Donald suggested that if Abraham knew more about his family history, he might have felt kinder toward Thomas Lincoln. Because Thomas Lincoln's life had been tragic. His father was murdered in front of him. His mother rented him out for work. He had buried a son, a daughter, and a wife. His relationship with his only surviving child was, at best, uneasy. He uprooted his family due to economic forces he could not resist and struggled with debt and financial reverses at the end of his life. But for all that, Thomas never appears to have become bitter and retained his good nature through the end. A man who had nothing to aspire to could not understand a son who practically quaked with ambition. But Thomas never stepped in the way of his son's pursuit of greater things. And Abraham was probably more like his father than he cared to admit. His way of telling stories came directly from Thomas. 
And Thomas's constant search for Canaan, as Dennis Hanks put it, was at bottom a search for a better life. Abraham tried to improve his lot by training his mind. Thomas, by finding fertile land. They were, in different ways, strivers. And Abraham may have come to regret how he acted in his father's last days. When his fourth son was born in April 1853, he would be known as Tad. But the boy, who had a scar on his upper lip identical to his grandfather's, was named Thomas. Next time, we'll look at Lincoln's legal practice, which paid his bills and took him away from home. We'll also look at where Lincoln was strong as a lawyer and where he was weak.